Well, this will normally be the time when we would pray together, share our requests with one another, and ask God to hear and bless. We will be praying as well, but uh, I've decided once again to just move our prayer time past the sermon, because I think we really need to respond in prayer to what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so we're just going to slightly switch things around. We will be praying together, which I always say it. It's one of my favorite times, but it is, and so I'm just going to keep saying it. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. If you're using a brown pew Bible, that's on page 743. If you would stand together with me, Luke 19, starting at verse 1. Luke writes this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give Half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we come now to look at what God wants to say to us here. Living God, we come to this word that you have inspired men to write centuries ago, that we believe is still so relevant and, and meaningful today to our lives now, here. God, we come with excitement, with anticipation. You say that when you send your word out, it accomplishes just the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in us today. As I always ask, eternal God, move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. Well, we began a series last Sunday entitled Purpose. Why are we here? Why are we here? And one of the key things I wanted us to get from that message last Sunday, which was called Purpose, more than understanding how to use a toilet brush, was this, that we have a purpose. We have one. We have been created by God with a purpose, and though although we lost our ability to live according to that purpose because of sin, the power of Jesus, the gospel, has, has recreated our ability to be able to live according to that purpose again. The other key piece from last Sunday was in seeing that although there is benefit for us from that purpose that God has for us, it's not primarily about us at all. It's actually much more about us knowing God and making Him known. That's, that's the purpose for which God made us. Today, we're going to look at what really is the, the core of our purpose statement. 
as well as our whole existence as Christians, which is the gospel. Our purpose statement, our why as a church, says this. You'll see it on the back wall. You'll see it on your bulletin. That we exist to renew our city and world by demonstrating and declaring the transforming power of the gospel. You've probably heard that if you've been here for any length of time. So what we're saying in that statement is that everything is built out of that last piece, the gospel. That the gospel is the thing that's both transformed us as well as the only power, the only basis and foundation out of which we're going to see our city and our world renewed. It's the whole uh, structure out of which we build out of. We need that piece at its foundation. And if no one's ever told you what the gospel is before, I could tell you in a simple word what it is. Gospel is news. It's news about what God has done for all of us. He's done for the world that he loved in Jesus by sending Jesus to absorb the wrath that God had to pour out against our sin on the cross. He took it on himself for us so that now we could be restored back to relationship with him as our father. That's the whole good news. It's not history about something that happened. It's about news about what was accomplished. It's done, it's completed, and it's been done for you. Now, I trust you can appreciate that as a pastor, uh, uh, talking about a subject as vast, as epic and beautiful as the gospel, it creates a little bit of a logjam in in my mind and in my mouth uh, when I try to talk about it. Not because I I don't know what to say, but just there's just so much that wants to come out at once uh, when I talk about this. It's like asking me to pour a bowl of Rice Krispies from the bag through a McDonald's-sized drinking straw. There's just going to be always jams that take place every time I try to do it. So... In order to just try to boil it down, simplify the task, really to what our purpose statement simplifies it to, I want to talk this morning specifically about gospel transformation. Gospel transformation. What does gospel transformation look like? What would you say? How many of you can remember the day that you first heard the gospel and it so captivated your heart and you just had to respond to it, that you were changed by Can you remember that day even? Gospel transformation, I would say, looks as different and as vast as there are people in here because it affects us all differently in just the place that we are. And because the gospel transforms every part of us, both at one time and then over time, it's always going to look different. But when I tried to think of a picture, uh, uh, something that would give us a visual of what to look like, of, uh, of what gospel transformation is, what it could look like, what immediately came to my mind was this video I want to show you. A short video, a YouTube clip that I saw a few years ago. The video itself, they, they weren't trying to communicate gospel transformation at all. And yet it has this beautiful picture, I think, of exactly what gospel transformation looks like. So as you watch this, think for yourself instead, not only of, of what's happening, but think of it in the sense of what happens when a heart hears the gospel and is changed. Recording, Lachlan. First, hearing, first hearing aid. Are you ready? No. <laughs> okay. This is the, the big this moment the here. Moment. She's going to hear something. We don't really know what. And we're going to roll this on. I'm going to push on you in just a little bit. There you go. Beeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> Can you tell? Did you hear it? Yeah. Oh. Hey, I sound 
like an elderly munchkin, but do I sound like one now? <laughs> Is it on? It's on. My God, I can hear myself. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. It's okay. Blue. Blue. Orange. Orange. Red. Red. Black. Before Christ, before the hope of the gospel touched us, we were, we were just like that, weren't we? We couldn't hear. Maybe it's like those people who couldn't see before, and now they can see those who were dead and are now alive. These are all pictures of what gospel transformation looks like. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, you watch these people as they're hearing for the first time. They're just overcome with emotion. It's just like, oh, it's like this is what I always wondered what it was like, and now I know what it is. This is exactly what gospel transformation looks like in a thousand different ways, and just like that. You can see from these people's uh, response, it's just this mix of fear and hope, uh, uh, longing at last fulfilled. And it's the thing that I pray has happened in each of your hearts as well this morning. That as you've heard the message of the gospel, that you've been transformed and brought to the place where now you can hear the voice of your Savior. You can see his work all around you. Your heart, which was once a heart of stone, is now a heart of flesh. God has restored you and transformed you by the power of the gospel. So I think it's just a beautiful picture in that video of of exactly what happens to us but I want you to imagine a scenario right now. You are one of these people in the video. You've had this cochlear implant surgery. That's what they're all experiencing, a, a surgery where the, the auditory nerve is, is stimulated so they can actually now hear, or at least have the sensation of hearing that they weren't able to have before. You've had this surgery, and now you can hear for the first time, and you're just overwhelmed by the beauty of, of something that is such a privilege, which most of us just take for granted, being able to hear But then imagine you look around you and you're seeing all kinds of other people around you who you know are also deaf. People who can't hear all around you. And yet, 
for whatever reason, you decide not to say anything. You don't tell them that you've had the surgery and now you can hear, and you don't tell them that they can have the surgery and hear too. Now, why would you, why would you do that? Why would you keep something like that to yourself, keep it from loved ones, particularly when you know firsthand the struggle they're going through? Well, we could have all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, maybe for, for some of us, you, you, you worry that a friend who's already deeply struggling with not being able to hear, you think, man, think of the crushing disappointment if the surgery fails. What if it doesn't work? I don't want to set them up for disappointment like that. Or maybe you look at them and you're like, you know what, they seem to be doing pretty good. They're functioning very well, even though they can't hear. You know, they, they might actually be offended. They might be insulted that I would even suggest they should want to hear like I do. So we say nothing. Whatever the reason is, you, you, you hold it back and you, you keep it to yourself. Well, the way that relates to you and I today is we can often do the exact same thing when it comes to the transforming message of the gospel. We don't share it. We don't pass it on. We don't reach out to others with it. And we can have all kinds of different reasons for it. So although we might have this outward purpose and we'd nod our heads and say, Amen, we want to see our city and world transformed, we still, for some reason, we, we, we hold back. We don't share the message with others. We don't talk about it with people around us who we know don't know it, who we know haven't heard it. And maybe we have the same reasons. Maybe we think they'll be offended. They will we'll damage relationships if we try to suggest to them they should want this thing that we have They might just be insulted. They might be like, I'm doing just fine without your God, thanks very much. Or, God help us, even though we've been transformed by that message, we we worry that if we tell them about it, what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work and, and, and they're actually worse off because of it, because we even brought it up? Problem with both of those scenarios and every other reason we can come up with for not sharing the message is that just like we said last week, when we do that, we make our purpose here in this world about us. We make it about our own comfort and, and not, not damaging relationships or doing anything that would upset our comfort. We make it all about us. Well, I believe that in order to help correct that way of thinking, the Bible gives us this little snapshot story of the wee little man named Zacchaeus to show us something. To show us, first of all, the immense power that the gospel does have to transform people. That it it does transform lives in a moment. And also, I think to point out some of the ways that we can unknowingly, without even necessarily trying to, we can restrain, we can actually work against the power of that transforming message because of fear, because of pride, because of whatever it is. So, I want to look at our passage today, and I want to show you just two things quickly from it. I want to talk about the transforming power of the gospel, and then I want to talk about the restraining power of the transformed. Transforming power of the gospel and the restraining power of the transformed. So if you closed your Bibles, please open them up again to Luke 19. We'll dig into this together. I want you to follow along and see with me what I'm showing. I'm trying to show you. All right, let's look first at the transforming power of the gospel. The transforming power of the gospel. This is the whole basis upon which we've built our our purpose, our our why as a church. Now, if you grew up in church or you've been in church for any length of time, this story of Zacchaeus, and maybe even that 
cute little song about the wee little man named Zacchaeus, probably really familiar to you. Maybe you've, you've heard this many times. If you haven't, if you've never heard this story before, I just want to highlight a few quick details just to get us all on the same page. Uh, if you look at verse 1 of Luke 19, Jesus, here we see he's passing through this town called Jericho. And then look at verse 2. We read this. Luke says, A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now, we've covered this in the past when we've looked at Zacchaeus, but I'll just mention it again. Uh, uh, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not the same thing as our modern-day uh, accountants, uh, Canada Revenue Agency employees. It's not the same thing, okay? E- even though yeah, maybe our blood pressure rises a little bit when we see those brown envelopes in the mail. We all wonder, okay, what's this going to be? Even though still, uh, I still have never met the person yet who says that they despise accountants, that they think CRA employees are, are despicable traitors. I haven't, I haven't met that person yet, and yet... In Jesus' day, that's exactly what they were viewed as. They, they were seen as extortionists, as opportunists, who, who used the power of the occupying Roman military in order to rob their very own people right in front of them. Okay, they would have been on the exact same level as, as Jews in the Second World War, helping the Nazi regime to afflict their very own people. It would have been the exact same thing to give you a picture of how these guys were viewed. Verse 2 told us this guy Zacchaeus, he wasn't just any tax collector. He was the chief tax collector, the boss over all the other tax collectors in Jericho. And it also told us he was wealthy. He was wealthy, which doesn't maybe sound like crazy, so he was wealthy. No, no. For a Jew living in Roman-occupied Jericho, that means something, okay? That means that when Zacchaeus watched the Olympics, he watched it on his 60-inch flat-screen TV that he taxed from his neighbor, living in the house that he probably also taxed from one of his closest relatives. This is the kind of guy we're talking about here. It's just to say that Zacchaeus probably didn't go out for a lot of evening strolls by himself. Okay, He was a hated man. And yet if you look at verse 3 now with me, we see here this despicable man, this man who would have been seen as one of the lowest sinners in the entire culture, This same guy is desperate to see Jesus, is desperate to see who this Jesus is. Now, we could chalk that up to celebrity, okay? Jesus has been going around, doing all kinds of miracles, healing deaf people, blind people, casting out demons. He's winning all kinds of epic battles with the religious leaders. So, you know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe Zacchaeus just wants to see Jesus, you know, get an autograph, take a selfie with him, and and move on. But if you look more closely at what verse 3 says, it's it's not quite that, is it? It says not just that he wanted to see Jesus, he wanted to see who Jesus was. See who this Jesus was, literally who he is. Jesus has been saying all kinds of things about himself, that he is God's son, that he is the Messiah. People are saying all this stuff. He wants to see, is Jesus who he says he is? He wants to meet this Jesus. And I believe what's going on in Zacchaeus' heart right now is actually that the call of God is on his heart. The call of God is on his heart to both meet Jesus and be transformed by him, even though Zacchaeus doesn't even know what that is yet. He just knows, I just know i got to meet this Jesus. i got to do whatever I can to meet him. That's all he knows right at this point. And I don't know, maybe, that's, maybe that describes your experience from the past too. You, don't even, you didn't even know all the answers. You, you had questions, but you, you didn't even know why. And you just knew, I need to find out about this Jesus. What's that about? And when you did find out, it changed you. 
Now, verse 3 tells us Zacchaeus also had another problem to overcome. It says that he was, look, it says he was a short man. Okay, now, in our day and age, maybe we'd have to say he was height-challenged or whatever in order to be PC, but whatever. Uh, uh, Because he was a height-challenged man, uh, Jesus is such a big deal that people are always crowded around him. He knows, I'm never going to get in to to see him and talk with him. And so that's why verse 4 tells us there, very classic to the story, Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree, along the roadside where he sees Jesus is passing by so he can get a look at him over top of all the people. But now here's where the story kind of goes off the script for Zacchaeus, right? I don't know if you've ever had this happen before where, where someone talks to you and you're not expecting them to talk to you so you don't even respond. You're just like, okay. okay. Uh, or maybe you see a celebrity at Safeway uh, and, and you, you don't want to talk with them necessarily, but you go in the same aisle as them, you know, just kind of shopping by them, see what kind of breakfast cereal they're buying or whatever it is. But then they talk to you, and, all, and you're so blown away by the fact that they're asking you a question, you don't even respond. You're just like, yeah. like no, no, I asked if you could pass me the... the I, I think that's exactly what's going on here. Zacchaeus, it's not in the text, but I bet you Jesus had to call Zacchaeus a couple times before he finally realized, okay, I'm talking to you. Yes, you, Zacchaeus. No, no, not the other guy up in the tree. You, Zacchaeus, yes. I think that's what happened because he's not expecting this to happen. He just thinks he's going to sit back and check it out. But no, 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 it's a very different thing that Jesus has planned. And what verses 5 and 6 show us now, if you look there, we see this amazing, beautiful moment of gospel transformation where although Zacchaeus thought he was there seeking out Jesus, we see that actually it was Jesus who was seeking out him. Look at verse 5 with me here. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, two things I want you to notice in particular about that. First of all, you notice Jesus didn't say, I really want to come to your house today. He says, I must come. Now, that's significant because there's only a few times actually in the Gospels where Jesus says stuff like this, I must, I have to. People are telling him to do something, not to do something, and he says, no, 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 I have to do it this way. It's got to be like this. John the Baptist, when he goes to baptize Jesus, John says, no, 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 you can't, I I, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, it has to be this way. We have to fulfill all righteousness. I need you to baptize me. When Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. Lord, and Jesus says, no, no, I have to wash your feet, Peter. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. In each one of these cases, what Jesus is saying is that it's a divine necessity that he accomplishes these actions. Second thing is, you notice, Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus if he could come over. He didn't say, listen, run home, get things set up, put on a roast or whatever, uh, get the house cleaned up and ready for me. You know, he just tells him he's coming over. And I would say to you, my, my own understanding as I read the Bible is that's the way it always works in salvation. However we understand the chronology of events, what we're seeing here is that rather than us seeking Jesus, I believe Jesus is always seeking us first. Amen. Amen. Now Luke doesn't give us uh, minute details in the story, but for all accounts and purposes, what we're seeing is an immediate transformation in Zacchaeus. Verse 6 says he, he, he gets down immediately, he comes right down, leaps down from the tree and receives. He, he welcomes Jesus gladly, I believe, not only into his home, but also into his heart. This is his moment of salvation and transformation. And then verse 8, if you look ahead there, it's, just, it's showing us the fruit of that transformation now. 
It's showing us a man who was once and miserly and wicked as they come, begins handing out wealth, hand over fist, making restitution in ways that was well above what would have been required for him in the law. Seriously, I mean, just think like Ebenezer Scrooge Christmas morning after uh, uh, all the spirits have come to visit him, running through the streets just giddy with generosity. Like it's just an obvious transformation has taken place in this man. And I want to stress, this is important, this generosity is the fruit of the transformation, not the cause of it. Okay? When Jesus says in verse 9, salvation has come to this house today, he's not saying that because Zacchaeus gave a bunch of money away. He's saying Zacchaeus' generosity is, is a demonstration of the fact that he's already being transformed. And man, there's, there's way too much that I want to say about this. I would keep you here all afternoon if I could. But I want to highlight two things as we think about what this means in relation to our purpose, what we've said, why we're here as a church. First thing, I think what Luke is showing us here is really, it's almost like a living parable. All right, This is an event that actually happened in history, but Luke is showing us here an example of what gospel transformation looks like in the heart of an individual. He's saying it looks like this. And although gospel transformation absolutely does bring renewal to systems, to laws, to governments and cities, it brings transformation to all those things, I think Luke's showing us there's actually an order to things and the way it happens. So, Luke is showing us here that although gospel transformation does affect and does transform systems and laws, it always begins and centers around individuals. And as those individuals are transformed, then so too do the systems, the laws, the whatever it is that needs to be changed, okay? Zacchaeus is transformed, and as he's transformed, then so too is his corrupt law or, or tax practices. So the, trans, the, the, the series of events is always people transformation, and then system, government, law transformation. I think that's what he's showing us here. So even though we say we want our city and our world to be renewed, we do. We see things all around us, laws that we'd like to be changed, things that don't reflect God's purposes for the world. That transformation begins with individuals first. As they're transformed by the gospel, then so too do the city and the world get transformed. So, that's the first thing that we're seeing here. Zacchaeus' tax collecting practices are changed. Second thing to see here is that Jesus is the one who is sovereign over the transformation. He's the one who's affecting the transformation in Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus thought he was there to meet Jesus, but Jesus, as we saw, no, Jesus was there to meet with him. And I point that out because I know all of us in here, if you know Jesus today, you've got somebody in your life, maybe a lot of people, that you want this to happen to as well. You want them to know who Jesus is too. And they don't. And you feel this crushing burden because you're praying for them. Maybe you are trying to share and they aren't being transformed and you don't know why. And I want to just remove that burden off your shoulders. Take the burden of you feeling like you're the one who's going to transform people off your shoulders and place it back into the hands of the one who can actually do the transformation. Jesus is the one who transforms people, not you. And we, we are crushed by the burden when we feel like it's me. I'm not doing enough. I'm not praying hard enough. I just want to take that burden off you this morning. It's, it's humbling and, and amazing when God condescends to use us in that transformation process. It's amazing that he would do that because he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to accomplish that, but he invites us in to be a part of it. But we must never mistake his invitation to join him in the work as giving us the responsibility to accomplish it. 
Those are two very different things. Inviting us in, that's a joyous privilege to be a part of that. Feeling like the responsibility is to transform people, that's a crushing burden you could never bear and you were never intended to. The gospel has the power to transform and renew. That's the power to transform. Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And if we looked at it in our order of events here, we could say first for the individual and then for the system. But the gospel does have the power to transform, and it's the whole basis, it's the power by which we will accomplish our purpose as a church. Okay, so that's the transforming power of the gospel. It does have the power to transform. The second thing I want to show us is the restraining power of the transformed. And one of the cool things about the Bible, which I'm sure you've experienced yourself, is the way you can read a story, you can read a passage and, 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 and listen to it and be like, oh, that's so awesome, I learned this and apply it that way. And then maybe a day later, a week later, a year later, you come back to the very same passage and learn something totally different. All of a sudden, it just affects you a totally different way. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Bible is such a timeless book. The, the, the scriptures don't change, but the way the Spirit applies them to us is always changing because there's always something new He wants to show us. And I'm sure in my lifetime, I must have either heard or read this story in Luke 19 of Zacchaeus like 20, 30 times, maybe more, and yet never before have I ever read this story and seen this pointed out to me, this, this the way that transformed people of God could actually try to restrain God's transforming work. I've never, never seen that before, and yet it just kind of flew out of me as I studied this week. Where do I see that? Look at verse 3, first of all. Here we see this. Zacchaeus is talking about, Now he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Now what's going on there? Now I'm, I'm not a super tall guy, but tall enough. Okay? And if somebody shorter than me, a kid, whatever, I'm at a parade at Disneyland, I'm watching Super Dogs, the P&E, whatever, if they ask to come in front of me and watch, what does that cost me? Nothing. I can still see everything I want to see, and it's just a, a courtesy. So when he's saying, Zacchaeus, he wanted to see Jesus, he wanted to get to him, but he knew I'm short and the crowd's never going to let me in, this describes an intentionality, doesn't it, to the crowd? They are purposely keeping this guy out, not letting him get to Jesus. No, no, I, I want to be close to Jesus. I want to learn more about him. And maybe what we know about Zacchaeus, maybe you'd say they had good reason for that. But still, they're, they're restraining him from getting to Jesus so they can be close to him themselves. And even if we try to get past that, if we look at verse 7 now, I think it becomes even more obvious what's going on. Zacchaeus has just been called down from this tree. Uh, he's been publicly invited by Jesus, to, to, or Jesus has publicly invited to himself to his home, which that doesn't mean as much to us now, but in a first century context, going to someone's home, eating with them, that, that described, that, that showed deep friendship and connection with that person. Okay, so it was a big deal to go to somebody's house. And that was actually the consistent charge against Jesus, wasn't it, all through the Gospels, that he is a friend of sinners, and yet, as you think of your own life and where Jesus took us from, aren't you glad that's exactly who he is? He is a friend of sinners. And then on top of that, Zacchaeus, in this moment, right in front of everyone, transformed, saved, becomes radically generous and changed man. This is happening right in front of people's eyes. Look at their response in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. 
gone to be the guest of a sinner. What? How do you, how do those two things go together? I don't know how you see that and that's your response. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick story. I don't, I don't say this to gain sympathy from you, but just to illustrate a point. When I uh, was five years old, we moved from Campbell River to Kamloops, where I uh, grew up most of my life. And so we moved halfway through the year, so we're all starting in a new school. I came into kindergarten uh, at that time, and, and during kindergarten, maybe if you can even remember this, there are different play centers that you go to, and, and kids... During the playtime, they go to their centers, and you sign up, and they can have a certain number of kids here and a certain number of kids on the blocks. Well, one of the things that all the boys wanted to do was the sand table. The sand table was awesome. It had all kinds of like water things and trucks. It was awesome. It was inside. Awesome. We always wanted to do it. A couple weeks in, uh, I get to be the one who chooses first what I want to go to. And so I'm like, well, fine. This is awesome. I'm just a new kid, but I get to choose. And so uh, so teacher says, Wesley, what... what uh, Say, which station do you want to go to? I'm like, sandbox. Want to do sandbox? And literally in that moment, two or three other boys, I remember went, no, no. Pick something else. Pick something else. Now, I was already stubborn by that age. Even so I'm like, I was picking something else. I'm going to sandbox. But you know what? Everybody else picked their centers. And that day, nobody else picked sandbox. I played in it by myself. And I just want to say, when you, these people standing here in our story, when you can see Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, standing there, saving someone, transforming them from despicable me into Daddy Warbucks in a moment, and your response is, no, not that guy. There's something wrong, right? There's something we're missing in that equation, isn't there? So I'm, I'm seeing that. I'm like, why would they respond like that in this moment? That's so crazy that they would do that. I mean, aren't these Jesus people? Why are they responding like that? And yet, all of a sudden, I tried to zoom back a bit. I looked at the context of this story, and my mind was blown up. Because look, just above Luke 19 and Luke 18. Luke 18, 35 through 43. Here there's a blind beggar. A blind homeless guy on the side of the road. Here's Jesus is coming. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And look at the response of the event organizers here. Luke 18, verse 39. Those who led the way rebuked him, told him to be quiet. What? Then look a bit further back. Luke 18, verse 15. Here, parents are bringing their little children to Jesus to be prayed for and to be healed. Look at the response of Jesus' disciples. Verse 15. People were bringing their babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. No, get, it, get those kids out of here. This is Jesus. He doesn't have time for that. This is a, a consistent... This is not even two chapters, and we're seeing over and over again this happening. Now, what I love is that in every single one of those stories, every single one, Jesus just easily walks around all the, the traffic cones that his transformed people are trying to put up. He, he touches them. He heals those people just like he did with Zacchaeus. So I, I love that that's the case. But man, just the prevalence of that attitude, even, not even in two chapters, I think the Bible's trying to point something out to us. It's trying to show us that even in the heart of a transformed child of God, we can misunderstand what's going on, what we've been called to now, and we start feeling like we've been called to be the gatekeepers. 
We've been called to be Jesus' uh, PR team. We've been called to be the bouncers at the Jesus Club, deciding who's going to come in and who's going to wait in line. And that's not what we've been called to at all. But don't we do this all the time? We, we love it when Bear Grylls gets saved and he wants to do alpha promo videos. We love it when Bono wants to meet with, with Eugene Peterson and talk about the message. We love that, but we don't, we don't like it so much. We don't think it's so good for Jesus' image when uh, that heroin addict down at Union Gospel Mission gets saved. We don't want to see that picture on our website. Someone raising their hands, praising Jesus with track marks all down his arms. That doesn't, that doesn't look so good on the website. We might not get many families coming to our church if people see that. What? Or we see young people who just seem to care more about Super Smash Brothers or, or how fast their internet speed is than about the Bible. And we think, yeah, well, maybe in a couple years. Maybe in a couple years they'll be good for Jesus' team, but not right now. For some of us, you search your heart, I know some of us, there's, that, there's a person or there's a group of people that have so deeply hurt you that have so deeply damaged you and you're just so done with, you would sooner send them to the back of the line to rot than see Jesus ever transform them. You're not, you're not better than that. Even the psalmist talks about that all through the Bible. He says, I want you to blot their name out of your book, Lord. Don't hear their prayers, Lord. We, we have this in our heart. And every time we do that, every time we have that attitude, we forget the reality that we used to be standing in that very same line. We were standing there too. And when we had no hope of getting in, no hope, Jesus walked right past those people who thought we weren't fit, who didn't think we were ready to meet Jesus yet, and he called to us, he found us, and he transformed us. That's our story. So as we think about our purpose that God's called us to, we need to honestly stop and recognize where, where are the places where I'm actually restraining the transforming work of God and the lives of the people that, that God has placed me around? Where am I doing that? And then we need to offer the very same grace that was offered to us to them. Because he's calling to them too. And he's invited us in to be a part of that transformation. Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world despise things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is our only boast as transformed people of God as those who've been transformed by the gospel, that God could use weak, uh, uh, lowly jars of clay like us to accomplish his purpose. That's, that's our boast. We should never forget, as one of my favorite pastors, Matt Chandler out of Dallas, loves to say, God doesn't need you to be awesome in order to make him look good. He can do that all on his own. 
What he needs you to do, what he needs me to do, is to be faithful and obedient to the purpose for which he's created us, which is to know him more and to make him known to all the people that he's calling to himself today. It's an amazing privilege to be God's agents of gospel transformation. That's what we are as a church. The question we need to answer for ourselves, if God has, has given us this purpose, if he's chosen to invite us in, give us a front row seat as he's transforming people, why would we not want to be a part of that? Why would we restrain that work in any way? If Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with those people, why would we be? Why would we allow fear pride to keep us in joining the king of the universe as he transforms and renews people right in front of our eyes the very same way he transformed us my prayer for us today is that we would just in whatever ways we're doing it we would get out of the way get out of the way and just get on with living that purpose out for which god has called us to be those agents of transformation because he's calling to people at this very moment today. And he's placed you in their lives in order to be one of his agents of transformation. How do we do that? Come back in two weeks. When we continue to talk about how it is that we renew our world, how we demonstrate the gospel, how we declare it. That's what we're going to be spending, going back to this fundamental place of beginning so that we know where we're going from here. Starting with the why. But now is where we want us to respond in prayer to what we've just heard. I want us to take a moment now to pray together. I want you to think about the people that God has placed in your own life. And I want you to just ask yourself a few questions. We're going to pray together. If you feel like you can pray out loud, do that. If you want to pray in the quietness of your heart, do that. If you want to pray with someone beside you, do that. But I want to ask you a few questions to kind of help you frame what we're going to pray for right now. All of us have people in our lives that we know don't yet know this message. And I want to ask you, first of all, who have you stopped praying for? Who have you stopped praying for? Have you just said, it's not going to work? I've told them about the message. They're so hostile. They don't respond. Who have you given up praying for? This morning, I want you to pray for them again. Ask God again. Cry out to him. We see all through scripture that God is blessed and we continue to come to him. As long as they're still here in this world, there's still time and there's still hope for them. Don't give up praying for them. Second thing I want to ask you is if you know those people in your heart that you don't pray, you don't want to see God transform. You don't necessarily have to have that person, but if you do, I want you to pray for that person this morning. The only hope for the transformation of that brokenness is in their gospel transformation. So I want you to pray for them that God would take hold of them and transform them the same way that he did this wicked, vile man, Zacchaeus. Nobody's beyond the power or the reach of the gospel. Final thing, as we talked about the way that when people are transformed, systems are transformed, I also want us together this morning to pray for those in power. I want us to pray for our mayor. I want us to pray for Christy Clark. I want us to pray for Justin Trudeau. Those people who are in power right now because as the gospel changes individuals, it changes systems. It changes governments. There's laws in our land that we don't like right now, that we don't think reflect God's will for the earth. They're not going to change necessarily by us. God, please change those laws. Let's ask God to change and transform the people who have the power to change those laws.
and we'll see our city and our world renewed by the powerful transformation of the gospel. Let's take a moment just to think through some of those questions. We'll pray together, and then we'll come forward and take the supper, which reminds us of the price that was paid for all of us to be welcomed in freely at no cost to ourselves.